Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And would you stand as I read God's word? As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And it happened that he was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace toward us in Christ. We thank you for the many gifts you have given. And in this moment, we ask for greater grace that you would open our eyes and unplug our ears, soften our hearts, free us from distraction, perk us up that we might hear. And so, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you, would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said, heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So Lord, would you come? Would you speak to us? Speak, O Lord. Father in heaven, speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. It's hard to communicate to you how much tax collectors would have been hated in the first century. Um, Jesus is going about his itinerant ministry, right? He's traveling around. And I think it's significant, and I don't want to dwell upon it too much, but it's significant that Jesus' incarnation manifests in him going to people. It manifests in him stepping into new towns and new desolate areas and engaging with new crowds and calling new disciples that Jesus, as one commentator notes, he's not just a talking head. He's not just a fountain of wise sayings in the gospel. He's not just a teacher, but he is showing up in towns and on doorsteps. He's showing up. And part of Jesus' incarnation, a part of the Word becoming flesh, is that He shows up here on the banks of the Sea of Galilee and He meets a man named Levi, or you might know him as Matthew. This is Matthew who writes Matthew's Gospel. And it was not uncommon for people to have two names, so don't stress over that, right? We have, we have Saul, who's also Paul. Right? He doesn't become Paul. He's the Saul of Paul. You have Simon, Peter, John, Mark, etc., etc. So uh, this is Matthew, who is also known as Levi. And he's a tax collector. And tax collectors would have been despised. Um, and you think you hate taxes now. Right? Uh, unjust taxes are, uh, are theft. Unjust taxes are theft. And I'm not going to get into that in 21st century America right now. That's not my point. Um, But Matthew in his or Levi, according to his work, 
would have been part and parcel. He would have been an agent of robbery in many people's eyes. And particularly with the scribes of the Pharisees who were very particular. They were very particular about separating from those who were not a living according to God's law, according to God's instruction, according to God's Torah. And so in their mind, this man Levi and those who are like him were part and parcel to not only robbery, but to the oppressive hand of the Romans, taking that which did not belong to them. Taxation in this time was very much like our own. It was very complicated, and it's probably beyond my grasp of understanding, but there were polls, and there were basically income taxes, property taxes, that would have been collected by the Romans themselves. Levi here is not a Roman. He has... Uh, he has a Hebrew, an Aramaic name, Levi. He's one of the tribes, uh, one of the twelve tribes. He would have been there collecting uh, taxes based upon the fish trade, right? Selling and uh, selling and, and bartering that's going around with uh, those who are bringing in their fish, and he would have been collecting taxes based upon that. And he was positioned in such a way, and he had, if you would, he would he had the muscle to collect. Not in and of himself, but there would have been a group of soldiers, lieutenants who were there to to break some kneecaps and to threaten some people if they did not put up their taxes. And so Levi, though he did not work directly for the Romans, there were Roman tax collectors and then there were these tax collectors who worked directly under Herod. Now, if you imagine, you have the Romans who are the big bosses, you have Herod who is the little boss, and then Herod has his own soldiers, his own little mini-government that's under the Romans, and Levi would have worked under Herod. So he's many layers deep into what many of the, uh, those in Galilee would have seen as the oppressive hand of the Romans, and therefore tax collectors were not only ostracized, they were downright hated. And you see this showing up all over the Gospels. Another famous tax collector would have been anybody? The wee little man. The wee little man was. All right. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector as well. So Jesus meets this tax collector, and it's important, okay? This is important for the continuity of where we're going this morning that you see that there's a similarity and there's a distinction between Levi and Peter and Andrew and James and John that Jesus calls them from being fishermen. Fishermen, totally fine. Totally fine vocation. Uh, You you probably stank most of the time, but it was was upstanding. You fed people. You didn't do anything wrong. Those Those were fine gentlemen of the water. Levi, on the other hand, would have been hated. There was a scandal. There's a scandal brewing. A scandal brewing in the grace of Jesus being extended to such a man as this. Now, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, John, all sinners. But Levi, Levi and the tax collectors were a peculiar and particular type of sinner that would have been again hated. They were seen as those who were perpetuating an anti-God government. Those who were 
They were a part of the regime that the Messiah was supposed to come and kick out. Remember the messianic expectations that are around swirling in first century Israel. That they expected the Messiah to be this political king, a military king who was going to come in, ride in with his chariots and his howitzers, and he's going to kick out the Romans and set up a new Davidic dominion, a new kingdom like Solomon, that there would be this earthly kingdom, military and financial strength. And so in many of people's, the scribes, the Pharisees, and and many of the Jewish people in the first century, they would have expected the Messiah to go and rough up the tax collector. To go and, if you would, to, to break the grip of the oppressor. To liberate them from the one who is stealing from them, who is keeping them down, who is a part of this Roman overlord oppression. And yet Jesus' kingdom is, as we know, hopefully you know by now, Jesus' kingdom shows up differently. And while he is there to accomplish dominion, his dominion comes through different means than force, through military or financial strength. The strength of the kingdom of Jesus is in His grace. See, the grace of God is amazing, and yet it is overwhelming, and it is conquering. Jesus comes to this, for many would be an enemy of the state, an enemy of the the messianic rule, and He comes to him and says, follow me. That there is a royal summons given to this man. Given to this man. And what does Levi do? Just like Peter and all of his fishermen fishermen buddies, he leaves everything and follows. See, in the Gospels, and particularly in Mark's Gospel, There is no distinction between having faith in Jesus and following Jesus. In Mark's gospel and all throughout the New Testament, you could argue, there is no distinction between having faith in Jesus and following Jesus. How often have we made those kind of distinctions in our own lives? How often do we encourage that kind of false dichotomy saying you can believe upon Jesus or another way that this is often phrased or has been phrased is that you can have Jesus as your savior and not have Jesus as your Lord. That you can believe upon Jesus and not follow him. Now, that might be the reality, but that is not what Christ calls us to. And what I mean by that, that sometimes shows up in our lives where we're growing and Christ first does a work in our hearts and we're struggling to learn what it means to live out our faith in the context of our lives. But dear ones, there is no faith that does not follow. There is no faith in Jesus that does not follow Jesus. There is no faith that does not enter into discipleship. 
into being obedient to Jesus. Jesus says to his disciples in John's gospel, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It doesn't mean that he loves us because we keep his commandments. But out of the overwhelming gratitude of our hearts of being called and saved by the grace of God and Jesus, we now obey. And we follow him. We take up our cross. We deny ourselves. We follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And that is the call for all Christians. That's not the call simply for the super spiritual. It's not the call just for the pastor or the deacon or the missionary or some seminary professor. That is what Jesus is calling you to. That is what he's calling you to a wholehearted, total and immediate commitment. Levi leaves the tax booth. He leaves where he is in order to follow Jesus. After this stark break that happens in Levi's life, where his faith erupts into following, he's been received the grace of God, and he begins to follow Jesus Christ. He goes to his house. And it happened that he, Jesus, was reclining at table, at the table, that he's, at, he's in Levi's house, he's in this tax collector's house. So I want you to see the scandal of grace for those who are observing what's happening here. By scandal, I mean that this is something that the religious people around who are sort of orbiting Jesus' ministry, that they begin to stumble over. And this is going to reach a fever pitch later in the gospel with Jesus' conflict with the Pharisees, Sadducees, etc. The fact that he would love, choose, and have this man as a disciple. But now it go, it's like gasoline on a fire. It's not just one of them, but there are many of them. There are many tax collectors and there are many sinners. And maybe a good way to understand how gr- the, the gravity of this is that the, the, the word sinner here is the same word used in the Old Testament Greek translation for the wicked. That these are people who are not just sort of, they, they don't just sort of slip into sin every now and again. But that these are people who are consciously, intentionally living outside of God's will and God's law in first century Israel. Tax collectors and sinners, and yet Jesus is here reclining at the table. Now, this means that they weren't eating like you and I imagine. You and I eat. Um, Either sitting down at the kitchen table, or if, if you're me in my household with the craziness that we have going on, I'm often eating with standing up as I'm going, simply for survival, right? I'm trying to catch children. I'm trying to make sure that, you know, that if they're allergic to something, they don't grab this. Anyways, it's a whole thing. But for them, the way that the meal was set up is that there would be a sort of a, a, a table, a, a, a pallet of food in the middle, and people would be reclining on their left hand or left elbow. Their feet would be going out, and they would be feeding themselves with their right hand. So imagine that there's, a, there's food in the middle and there's like spokes on the wheel of people. And the, 
This kind of eating arrangement, at least it seems to me, I've never done this. Uh, you're not going to come over to my house and we're not going to eat like this. But it seems like a much more intimate setting. Just consider the, uh, the Last Supper where John the disciple leans back onto Jesus' chest. You begin to see how, how intimate that is. The closeness of Jesus and his disciples then. And that closeness is mirrored here. As Jesus is in that sort of intimate, close proximity with tax collectors and sinners. And he's there on purpose. It's not like Jesus was walking around and tripped and stumbled and all of a sudden fell into this meal with a bunch of wicked people. But he's there on purpose. And, and there's, no, there's no prerequisite. There, there's nothing that these people have had to fulfill to come and eat dinner with Jesus. There's no hoops to jump through. There's no summons to get their lives right before they're welcomed at the table of Jesus. Now, don't, don't equate what I'm saying here. I'm not talking about the Lord's Supper. That's different. That's for believers only. But to be welcomed into this intimate presence of Jesus, there's no prerequisites here. Jesus feels no burden like we often do in our culture. He feels no burden to say, well, I actually disagree with you on this. I think you're living wrong like this. I hate that you do this and this and this. But too often, Christians, that's how we post ourselves up in this culture. And no wonder our tables are empty of tax collectors and sinners. They won't want to be there. They don't want to hear it. Jesus, as one, one commentator makes the note, and his name's Hans, Hans Beyer. And I always think of Die Hard, Hans Gruber. Some of you, let, let those who have ears hear. Uh, that he says that Jesus is able, that he pursues two things. He pursues a radical personal purity according to the law of God. That Jesus is completely without sin and lives in complete obedience to the will of God. Articulated in the Bible. Articulated in the, in the Torah. And simultaneously he pursues, and I love this phrase from Bayer. He pursues transformative, he he pursues the transformative fellowship of mercy. He pursues the transformative fellowship of mercy. That it's in the context of fellowship, of relationship, that people experience the mercy of God and they are transformed. It's in the context of relationship the people experience the mercy of God, the grace of God, and they are transformed. For Jesus to extend this type of mercy to the sinner does nothing to corrupt, corrupt his purity before God. And how often do we muddle, muddle those two up? Saying somehow I've got to prove my holiness. I don't, I don't want people to think. I don't want people to think that I approve of such behavior. 
So I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to be in those intimate settings. But to follow Jesus for Levi means following Jesus to the feast. For Levi, following Jesus, just as Jesus went to Simon Peter and he says, follow me and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And here with Levi, he says, follow me and then invite all of your buddies. Invite your whole tax collecting network. Invite all of your your drinking buddies, your partying buddies, invite them over. And we're going to have a meal. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what these self-righteous, self-important scribes and Pharisees, what is happening to them? How dare he? They've they've already run into him earlier in chapter 2 where he he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And they have this, they have like a hot flash of rage. Saying only God forgives sin. And now this man who is there forgiving sin is welcoming these people to his table. And I'm not doing a good job making you feel the tension of the scandal of this grace. That there's nothing. That there's nothing that these people can contribute to their salvation. And in the words of Jonathan Edwards, there's nothing that they can contribute to their salvation except for the sin that makes it necessary. But for the Pharisees... They were deluded in themselves and believed that they had something to offer. They had some way to garner God's affection. They had some way of earning what God would do for them. They were somehow worthy of His grace and of His favor. And there's a stark distinction as Levi has made this feast in his home, recruiting all of these people who are some of whom are already probably interested or heard of Jesus. Verse 15 says, but there's these two groups. They're the tax collectors and they're the sinners and they're scribes and Pharisees. One group, group A, has come to the point where they realize That they're bankrupt. Despite their pockets being full of stolen money. They are bankrupt before God. And then you have the other group who says, well, I'm really not that bad. That's probably where you are right now, maybe some of you. I'm really not that bad. How often have I heard it? If you said it to me, I'm not, this isn't judgment. I have no one in mind. I don't remember. But I've heard it a thousand times. Well, such and such isn't really, you know, they don't really go to church. They don't really believe in Jesus. But they're really a good guy. And it's like, I get what you're saying, right? They haven't shot anybody lately. They haven't spent any time incarcerated. Uh, they're, they're, They're pleasant to be around. They pay their bills, maybe. But unless we are disavowed of the idea that we're really not that bad, unless it is removed from us, 
That we have, you know, if God would, God would keep track of my goodness. Look at, look at all this goodness. God, look. See, I'm not a bad guy. Have you seen that guy? Have you seen that lady? Have you seen her? She can't get it together. She drinks too much. She smokes stuff she shouldn't smoke. Her life is a wreck. Look at her. But look how great I am. How often do we fall into this comparison? And so the fact that that lady would be the object of God's grace and love and summoning power to bring her to himself, it would drive the religiously self-important mad. That's exactly what happens throughout the Gospels. Because there's nowhere here, and there's nowhere to you, whatever your status is spiritually, there's nowhere that God says, here, I want you to check one, two, three, four, five boxes, and then get back to me later when you've, when you've sorted this stuff out. When your marriage is finally not a wreck, when you're, when you're done being addicted to substances or to your computer or to whatever else, and fill in the gap. When you're, when you're done smoking and chewing and you're done cussing, then, then come see me. That's not what happens here. At all. Jesus is there eating, dipping his food in the... With these guys who just a little while later use those same hands to defraud people and worse. And that should bother, that should bother the self-righteous among us. When the scribe, they see it and they ask his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overheard them and he says this wonderful sentence. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So who's who here? Well, if we're going to kind of back up and zoom out from all of scripture, everybody's a sinner and everybody is sick. But there are many among us And it might be true of you who are deluded and self-deceived into believing that you are spiritually healthy when you are a rotten apple. You're rotten to the core. Nobody else knows it. The skin of the apple is still intact. That little big brown soft spot has not yet arisen. And it might not arise till judgment day. But dear one, you cannot fool the one who examines the heart. You can fool all of us. You can, you can fool the preacher. You can fool the deacons. You can fool the church. You can fool us into baptizing you and putting you on a committee and making you leader of some ministry. But you cannot fool God. If you are here trusting that you yourself by your own power are healthy spiritually, healthy and right before God, then you are not. But the, 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 the Pharisees and their scribes, they believed themselves to be healthy. They believed themselves to be right because of what they had done. 
And what Jesus is saying, if you will not acknowledge or if you don't have eyes to see your need, you're going to have no need for the physician. Could you imagine you feeling fit, feeling good, feeling healthy? And some dude coming to you and saying, you really need to go to the doctor. You are not well. And you're thinking to yourself, I have been, I'm I'm the best health I've ever been. While all the while, there's a cancer brewing. If you're leaning upon yourself and you're leaning upon your own ability and your own goodness and your own righteousness, you will, you will have no need for the Savior. And you'll see what Jesus offers you as a simple add-on to your self-righteousness. But if we would be like these tax collectors and sinners who are well aware that they are soul-sick, They're well aware that there's a rottenness in their bones. They're well aware that there's no way they can be righteous with God. Then that posture of recognizing our spiritual sickness, recognizing our sin and rebellion before God, and the humility that comes from that, and the desperation that comes from that, positions us. It positions us to receive the grace of Christ alone. Do you see the difference? If I recognize that I don't have what it takes, if I recognize that there is a sickness in my spiritual bones, and I look to Jesus who says, Come to me, all you who are weary. And I come, and He forgives, and He renews, and He regenerates, and He brings new life. Who gets the glory? Jesus. But if I believe that I've got it together... And yet I want a little bit of Jesus on the side. So I hook the Jesus trailer to the back of my tractor. Say, look, I've got Jesus back there, but I'm really a good person. I'm really good, but I I just like a little bit of Jesus in the back. Who gets the glory? Who's the hero of that story? You are. The way that the self-righteous love it to be. You being the hero. And not Christ. Those who are healthy don't see that they need a physician, but those who are sick do. Jesus did not come to call self-righteous, the self-important, because they wouldn't have him. He came to call sinners. And I'm just going to give you a newsflash. And if I could have a little mirror, I would say, there ain't nothing but sinners in this building. You need what Jesus offers. And you will never, I will never outgrow our need for what Jesus has done and what he is doing and what he will do. We we need Jesus. A few points of application and then we'll put a bow on it one there is no faith without following have you followed Jesus totally immediately with full commitment 
Have you come to that point of saying, I'm at the end of myself, I need Christ, and submitted your life to Him? Today is the day if that is not true. And today is the day to renew that following commitment. Secondly, examine. Examine your heart. Examine your life. Are you leaning on your own goodness? Are you believing your own righteousness to be that which commends you to God? If you were looking at you, he says, you're, you're swell. I just think you're swell and great. If that's the end of the story, do you, then you need to confess your sin before God. Are you, do you see yourself as healthy or sick? Is Jesus an add-on or is Jesus essential? And finally, feast. Many of you are going to tables this week. You're going to tables at your house. You're going to tables at family's house. You're going to tables at neighbor's house. You're going to tables at Golden Corral. I don't know where you're going. I don't, is there a Golden Corral? I don't need to know. I don't, I don't need to know. But as Jesus pursues, he pursues this transformative fellowship of mercy. Who is it that needs to be invited to your table What neighbor needs to be invited to your table? What overlooked person in your neighborhood needs to be invited to your table? And it might not be for Thanksgiving. I know it's kind of crazy. But who do you know? Who do you know right now that their lives are a wreck? And that by the bridge of hospitality, you might be able to show them the mercy of Christ. Follow Jesus into the feast. Embrace the awkwardness and don't feel like you've got to defend yourself every time that person says something or does something that you think is sinful. It very well probably is. But conviction belongs to God. He's called you to be faithful with the gospel where you are with that person. So pursue the feast. Follow Christ wholeheartedly. Examine your lives. Recognize that it's by grace alone that you are alive in Jesus. And follow him into the feast, inviting those who are far from God to your table. Invite them to your cookout. Invite them to your Christmas party. Invite them in and see what God might do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you have summoned us by your grace to follow. I pray, Lord, as your spirit takes your word now, as you've promised to, uh, that your word would accomplish your will and your ends that it would not come back void. We ask, O Lord, that you would summon up faith where it has never been. Would you crack the hard-heartedness of the self-righteous that they might see their sin sickness and lean upon Christ alone, where they have made you, Lord Jesus, simply an add-on Would they, by your grace, see that they desperately need you at the center? Pray that you would encourage those who are following you. Though they might be beleaguered, though we are continually assailed by sin and Satan, would they know that you have welcomed them to your table forever? And finally, Father, I ask that you would give us sight.
Help us to see those that are already in our midst, already in our neighborhoods, already in our workplaces, already around us. That we could simply invite. We could invite them into our homes. We could invite them out to lunch. We could invite them to coffee. We could invite them to church. We could invite them that they might be welcomed at your table. Welcomed in your presence. And Lord, having seen you amongst your people and heard of you, that they might be transformed to follow you. So Lord, help us. We thank you. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you've welcomed us. Be honored in all things in Christ's name. Amen.